Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to advancing options and providing hope for people living with cancer. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about pancreatic cancer research with Dr. Harvey Risch. Dr. Risch is a professor of epidemiology and chronic diseases at the Yale School of Public Health. And Dr. Gore is a professor of internal medicine and hematology at Yale School of Medicine and director of hematologic malignancies at Smilo Cancer Hospital. You know, epidemiology is one of those words that people see in the newspaper, and I think many people don't have a, have a clue. So, so what, what's the deal? What's epidemiology? So that's interesting because everybody out there in the science world thinks they understand it without knowing anything about it. <laughs> so it's kind of well, I'm going to claim ignorance. So, so what makes it's interesting that what makes epidemiology scientific is that we would like to study the entire population the entire world of everybody and every disease everybody with every disease but obviously that's impossible that's a big chunk so what we do is we take samples of people from the population we take samples of people with the diseases we're interested in and we try to conclude from studying samples of people that they represent what the disease actually does and how it works and how to fix it and so on and how it applies to everybody in the population and so what makes us scientific is how we can generalize from our restricted samples of people and samples of measurements to the whole population. And there's some very subtle science involved in that that is just kind of transparent to the whole rest of the world that thinks, oh, we just study people with disease and people without. And and it, it, uh, my colleagues, even my own doctoral students, don't realize that that's what makes us scientific until I actually start discussing it with them why they think epidemiology is scientific. Hmm. Sounds a little bit like polling, really, where, uh, you know, where uh, the, the polling people take you know, samples and extrapolate from that, or am I totally off base there? No, that is true, except that the polls can change the next day, and the polls know that they're obviously going to be wrong half the time as much as they're right, mm -hmm. and they move on, whereas we put everything in the literature, and our colleagues always cite us, and when we get it wrong, we, we're wrong forever, so <laughs> we have to be more careful. So how does how, how does that actually translate? So uh, in somebody who's interested, particularly in, in pancreas cancer, is that what happened in your case? You were looking at pancreas cancer, or or did interesting things about pancreas cancer fall out of other things you were looking at? So this happened quite by accident. Uh, my study uh, in pancreatic cancer, about two thousand or two thousand one. I'm an editor of the journal of the National Cancer Institute, and. A manuscript came my way to, to send out for review on the stomach bacterium Helicobacter pylori. That causes peptic ulcers, right? Yes, and why it should also cause pancreatic cancer. Huh. And I dis discovered pretty quickly that Helicobacter pylori does not colonize the pancreas. It stays in the stomach. Right. Most people, many people have it. A third of the American population has it. It doesn't do anything for them. It doesn't affect their health appreciably for most people who have it. And so how could an organism, a bacterium that sits in the stomach, affect the risk of pancreatic cancer where it doesn't uh, invade, it doesn't live? 
So after thinking about this for a while, I came up with a hypothesis about how it affects how the stomach functions and indirectly what the, how the pancreas responds to it. And I got two large studies funded to, to study this, one in Connecticut and one in Shanghai, and the hypotheses that I had proposed back in 2001, when these studies were finished in 2006 and 2009, directly supported the hypotheses that I had made. And that was kind of, it was, it's fun spending seven, eight years, nine years doing studies. And then when you get the data in 15 minutes later, you know whether your, your result that you had, had proposed, you know, seven, 10 years in the past actually is true or not. And, well, that's and, a lot of deferred gratification in the meantime. That's correct. <laughs> so, so one of the things that, that we didn't know at the time was we knew that aspirin um, was involved in affecting the climate of acidity in the stomach. Mm -hmm. Aspirin is not a totally benign medication. It, it has uh, side effects in a small minority of people, the erosion of, of the lining of the stomach or intestines, and causes a, a bleeding there in, in addition to potentially in, in the brain. It's yeah, not many common. people can't tolerate it. Right. So we, at, we included questions on aspirin use as part of the general questionnaire that we were interested in helicobacter pylori and, and pancreatic cancer. The extra effort of, of putting in a few questions on something you're interested in into a questionnaire that you've already set up for a different purpose is very small. So we included questions on aspirin. And what we found when we did this is that in both the Connecticut study and the Shanghai study, that people who said they used aspirin regularly, and now we're talking about low-dose aspirin, the kind that's not used because of pain or arthritis or something like that, but just to prevent cardiovascular uh, disease or, or reduce its risks or right. also for producing risk of colon cancer, also turned out to reduce the risk of pancreatic cancer by about a third. Well, who were you polling? I mean, what was the population that you were doing the study in? So one of the studies was done in Connecticut, mm -hmm. where over a about a four-year period, we interviewed everybody we could get to in time who had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And then we also took a sample of people from the population that we randomly chose from the population. We sent letters to and then we called up and asked them if they would participate in the, in the study. And, and they we, didn't have pancreas cancer, those people, presumably. We Presumably. We didn't ask them whether they had pancreatic cancer, but because pancreatic cancer is uncommon, none of them did, as far as we knew, at least at the time we interviewed them. Mm -hmm. And we did the same study in Shanghai starting two years or three years later because the, the helicobacter pylori in Asia is slightly different than the varieties that are present in, in Connecticut, and we wanted to get a handle on some variation in helicobacter pylori to see if that affected how this theory about what it was doing with gastric acidity uh, could be manifested. And so we had the same study there with a, the same questionnaire translated into Chinese, and we also asked about aspirin. Aspirin there, low-dose aspirin, for the same reasons was being used there. It's a kind of natural population experiment in both countries that people are using it because of media messages and educational messages that they get thinking that it'll be helpful for them. But it's otherwise not related to particular disease. And so people who choose to use it are more or less similar to other people who choose not to use it. So it's a, a great way of of getting information about an exposure that shouldn't be biased because its relationships to other things that would be more related to risk of pancreatic cancer than the aspirin use. So it's a good measure uh, of aspirin usage, and we saw the same reduced risk both in Connecticut and in Shanghai.
Hmm. And how did you know whether the patients in the, I guess, the control population had the helicobacter or not? Or was that not something you could know from the study? Well, we took blood samples from everybody. Oh. And we, and we, we did testing uh, of their plasma samples from their blood. And so we know not only whether they had helicobacter once in their life and now had immunity to it, but it the means because it stays it's tolerated by the immune system that it both generates an immune response that's measurable in the blood and it sits there in the stomach kind of quietly doing its own thing and not affecting very much hmm. so even in the in the normal controls you were able to get blood samples yes that's correct oh how interesting um, and, and was there in fact a relationship between the helicobacter exposure and in incidence of pancreas cancer, or it was kind of like a red herring that got you onto the aspirin thing? No, actually, there is an association, and, and that was my original hypothesis. Helicobacter pylori comes in two varieties. One is a more aggressive version called CAG-A positive. This is the CAG-A is a protein on the surface of the bacterium that helps the, the bacterium to invade the cells lining the stomach. Okay. And those, those bacteria, that version of helicobacter, reduces, shuts off stomach acid. Its cousin, the CAG-A negative, the bacteria that d don't have that particular protein on the surface, don't are less aggressive and don't do that, and they allow stomach acid to be normal or even raised. And the hypothesis that we developed was that it was the effect of helicobacter on gastric acid, on stomach acid, that the pancreas sees when the stomach acid gets into the duodenum after it leaves the stomach, the, the, the pancreas senses that indirectly through, through gastrointestinal hormones and turns on a hormone and produces bicarbonate that, is the, that neutralizes the stomach acidity so that that acid doesn't harm the rest of the intestines. Okay. And so in the people who have extra acidity have to make more bicarbonate to neutralize it. People who have less acidity have to make, end up making less. And the pancreas is responsible for making this. And the same machinery in the pancreas that makes the fluid that comes out of the pancreas and the bicarbonate that neutralizes the, the stomach acidity also affects how the cells of the pancreas reproduce. And so that, that mechanism allows the pancreas to feel a response, so to speak, to what the stomach is doing in terms of acidity. And what we found is the helicobacter that increases stomach acidity reduces the, the, uh, increases the risk of pancreatic cancer, and the helicobacter that shuts off stomach acidity reduces the risk of pancreatic cancer. So this was the mechanism we had proposed that it was actions on gastric acidity in the stomach that affected how the pancreas responded to it. And since helicobacter came in two versions that did opposite things, the theory would predict that opposite risks would occur for pancreatic cancer. And that's exactly what we saw and exactly what we saw in the two studies, both in Connecticut and Shanghai. Yeah, that's fascinating. I'm still trying to get my head around how this uh, response in these cells in the pancreas in terms of trying to generate more bicarbonate is associated with uh, the cancer risk. So are they stem cells in the pancreas that are reproducing or? The pancreas, the, the great majority of the pancreas, not all, but the great majority of the pancreas is, is comprised of ducts. Mm -hmm. the, the ducts carry the pancreatic enzymes 
and fluid that's made in the cells lining the ducts and bicarbonate that's made in the cells lining the ducts into the intestine to do their functions sure. in the intestine. And the, the pancreas makes more than two liters of fluid a day. It's quite a large amount uh, of fluid that's that it amazing, makes. It's, yeah. a, it's a very active organ for making fluid and, and bicarbonate. Now, it's correct to think that, well, what's the matter with bicarbonate? It, it, it's, it doesn't cause cancer, it's, it, and fluid making fluid shouldn't cause cancer. Right. But the interesting thing is, from back in the 1980s, there were experiments in animals on a risk of pancreatic cancer where they would give a carcinogen under the skin, and some weeks or months later, the, 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 these were done in hamsters. The hamsters would get cancers of their pancreases. And what they found is if they gave those animals uh, a pancreatic hormone that stimulated them to produce more fluid and bicarbonate, it tripled the number of pancreatic tumors for the same dose of the carcinogen. No, no kidding. So it's not that this mechanism of the stomach acidity is causing cancers. What it's doing is it's making the pancreas more sensitive to cancers that are being caused from other carcinogens, like from smoking, things that get into the bloodstream and reach the pancreas. Hmm. Well, has anybody then, now that you've uh, learned this about the helicobacter and the acid and the and the aspirin through the epidemiologic liter- uh, data that you've developed, has anybody actually modeled this particular thing in animals uh, where you give the animals helicobacter some equivalent and... That's an experiment I would love to do, but because I'm not an animal scientist, I don't have the resources, and so far I haven't been able to convince anybody to do this study. I was going to say, there's a lot of good scientists at Yale. You should be able to find somebody who's interested. I would I, I'd like to. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, that's, that's super interesting. So now these data um, are all based on patients who had uh have cancer, right? But but so uh, I think after the break, I'd like to hear what you, your thoughts about how one validates or could validate that moving forward in people who don't have cancer. But before we get started on that, which is a big question, I need to take a short break for Medical Minute. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business that is pushing the boundaries of science to deliver new cancer medicines. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about genetic testing, which can be useful for people with certain types of cancer that seem to run in their families. Patients that are considered at risk receive genetic counseling and testing so informed medical decisions can be based on their own personal risk assessment. Resources for genetic counseling and testing are available at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers. Interdisciplinary teams include geneticists, genetic counselors, physicians, and nurses who work together to provide risk assessment and steps to prevent the development of cancer. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore. I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Harvey Risch, and we've been having a very interesting discussion about pancreas cancer and whether you can prevent it by taking a baby aspirin. I I know, Harvey, that you didn't actually imply that yet, but uh, what I was uh, starting to ask you about before I realized we had to take a break was, um, you know, you, you seem to have this very strong association or causation that you've proven, um, 
you know, oftentimes we want to validate these kinds of observations uh, sort of in a population that doesn't yet have cancer moving forward. Is that something that's underway or that can be envisioned? Or is pancreas cancer so rare that you can't really do a study where people take aspirin or don't take aspirin or have helicobacter or don't? So we like we not to say that pancreatic cancer is rare. Um, it might be infrequent. But if you say if you say a disease is rare, then nobody cares about it. And unfortunately, that's a terrible disease. It's a terrible disease, and and there are forty thousand plus Americans dying from it every year. You know, it's not it's, as much as we might think of it as as infrequent. By the time you turn forty or so, you'll have some family member or friend or acquaintance who will have died of it. So it's it's not that uncommon, unfortunately. Okay. So is anybody studying sort of intervention in high-risk populations? Are, can we identify high-risk populations? This is, this is a, a very pressing question. We know that people who uh, have been diagnosed with adult-onset diabetes have about a 50% increased risk. Hmm. That's if they've had it for a long time. On the other hand, a certain fraction of people with pancreatic cancer, their first manifestation is a new diagnosis of diabetes, yeah. that the disease itself causes a kind of a blanket function over the whole pancreas to reduce the ability to make insulin and, it, and for the insulin to function properly. And so they're diagnosed with diabetes. Within, say, two or three years, their pancreatic cancers become more manifest and they get that diagnosed. So diabetes and pancreatic cancer goes both ways. If one is diagnosed with, with diabetes, in their 50s or 60s, they have approximately an, uh, a six to eight-fold risk of being diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in that year. Wow. That goes down to three the next year and down to one and a half or two the year after that and stays about one and a half for the, the rest of their life. Mm -hmm. So there is a reciprocal relationship between diabetes and pancreatic cancer. And the first year of increased risk would suggest that newly diagnosed people with diabetes comprise a higher risk group uh, that can be looked at to see if any of them are indeed carrying pancreatic cancers that haven't been diagnosed yet. Hmm. The problem with that is that pancreatic cancer is an infrequent disease and it requires a, a marker, a, say a blood marker, for identifying it that is so um, what we call specific that means that it doesn't show positivity for people who don't have it. Sure. Well more than 99% of the time. Otherwise, every time you find somebody with a positive marker, the great majority of them will actually be negative anyway because the disease is infrequent. Right. So we haven't got good markers yet, and this is a very active study, a very active area of study, people looking at markers for identifying people with pancreatic cancer. Newly on, new onset people with nuanced diabetes might comprise an, a higher in, a risk group to study, but their risks, even at fourfold or sixfold for the first year, are still actually not high enough for the markers that we have available at present gotcha. to be able to use them without generating lots of people who are falsely identified as having pancreatic cancer when they don't. And that, of course, is a horrible thing to have happen to you. You, you think you have this fatal disease when, in fact, you don't. And, and so we don't want to do that. And, and that's what's limiting how far we can go with markers, even in high-risk groups for yeah, now. Gotcha. You know, I, I know many people are studying uh, the ability to detect cancer genes um, in the blood from DNA that's released from tumor cells. I don't know if that any if any of that's being investigated 
uh, in this context, I imagine probably some people are. Yes, they're, they're, people are investigating every possible marker of every kind that you can measure from almost anywhere, especially from the blood. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's quite a wide repertoire of different kinds of genetic and hormonal and other markers that just get into the blood from tumors, from the immune system that are responding to the tumors, from the, the uh, DNA and RNA that are reflective of things going on in the tumors or that are secreted by tumors for some other reason, everything that's out there that that might reflect what possible tumors are going on uh, is being studied. But of course, the problem is that biology is an approximate and inexact science, and measurements are always inexact, and there will always be errors in those measurements. And when you have the the, the statistical problem of having an infrequent disease, if you have even a small amount of error, then you'll make too many false positives, too many people who, who are labeled as having the disease when they don't. Yeah, gotcha. Well, it's, it's an area that's of, of great interest to me. My mother uh, unfortunately died of pancreas cancer at age uh, 76 and her sister at an older age. So I kind of had this... You know, according to some definitions, this I would be considered at a high risk uh, for uh, on the basis of family history. And when I was at Johns Hopkins, uh, there were people who were enrolling people in studies where people like me could be getting all sorts of screening with ultrasounds done through a endoscope and stuff. And I never really felt uh, strongly about it, uh, so I uh, so I never did anything about it. But I eventually did have my <laughs> DNA screened for cancer susceptibility genes um, because I could do that. Are we speaking about BRCA one and BRCA two? Yeah. Well, what what happened? Those I, I guess are common uh, from what I've learned. But uh, yeah, they actually went ahead and screened for kind of a whole variety of things of sort of anything that might be associated of any familial syndromes that might be associated with pancreas cancer. And I fortunately don't have any of them. But uh, so they're uncommon, even in among pancreatic cancer patients, they still account for less than 10 percent yeah. uh, of cases of the disease. What's interesting is that there's almost double risk in Ashkenazi Jews. Well, that, that I qualify for that. Right. So do I. And my grandfather died of pancreatic cancer, although he was 94 at the time. Right. Um, so uh, there, and we have a very active study on, on that going on now. Uh, a doctoral student of mine who, who finished her dissertation uh, last summer and is working on a publication where we did a genome-wide uh, association study in Ashkenazi Jews in the United States. And mm-hmm. we were able to do this because there are large databases of studies that have uh, pancreatic cancer cases in controls. And from those, from the genetic data, we can identify who's Jewish and who's not. In fact, we can tell how many Jewish grandparents a person has from that. Just like 23andMe. Oh, even better. I mean, I think that 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 our precision is is quite accurate about identifying Jewish ancestry by by genetic means, and so when we restricted it to to Jews, we indeed found two variants that are not commonly observed in non-Jews are very common in Jews and account for about one and a half or twofold increased risk together and could explain why Jews who should otherwise have lower risk in spite of a higher frequency of BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations, that doesn't explain their, their increased risk. There, there are other factors like education and, and socioeconomic status should actually explain a lower risk 
not a higher risk. And so we think that these genetic changes that are common and not high risk particularly, but are enough to explain the twofold risk. And those were changes in the BRCA genes or in different genes? Different In different genes. Innocuous genes that, that we're still exploring. Oh, how, how interesting. Gee, maybe I should get myself rescreened. I'll have to talk to you after the show. But, um, well, that's fascinating. So, so aspirin, you know, baby aspirin is, is a pretty benign treatment for many people. And as you well pointed out, many internists uh, uh, will uh, recommend baby aspirin uh, to people of a certain age with certain risk factors for cardiovascular disease. So, you know, people are kind of uh, worried about pancreas cancer. Should everybody just take baby aspirin? What, what's your thought about that? I don't think so. The problem, again, is pancreatic cancer is infrequent. So if people knew for some reason that they really were at elevated risk, it might be indicated. But on the other hand, colon cancer, colorectal cancer is frequent enough and cardiovascular disease is frequent enough that perhaps half the population would have indications for taking baby aspirin anyway. And in them, they will get the side benefit for reducing risk of pancreatic cancer. Hmm. the other half of the population has to weigh the pluses and minuses of taking aspirin against an outcome that would be horrible but infrequent. And so it's hard to quantify something with with a big damage that doesn't occur very often. It's like, what chances would you take of not getting hit by lightning? Would you stay indoors the rest of your life? Probably not. <laughs> I wouldn't, personally. <laughs> right. Well, what about screening for helicobacter? Should people be screened for helicobacter who don't have stomach symptoms? I think this is a, a totally open question at the moment. Helicobacter is not a, does not make the risk very different. It's detectable. And causes so, lymphoma also. Oh, yes. And, and stomach cancer and ulcers. And, uh, of course, so does ABO blood group. Uh, really? The same diseases that, that helicobacter affects, ABO blood group affects. Huh. And uh, what that connection is, it, it will be fascinating for somebody to, to discover. I'd love to know what it is, but we haven't been able to work that is out. Is it a particular one of the blood types? In Western populations, the A, B, and AB, the non-O blood types, uh-huh. are associated with increased risk of pancreatic cancer. A is associated with increased risk of gastric cancer. And in, in Asian populations, it seems to be non-A blood types that are associated with risk of pancreatic cancer. So there's a little bit of variation from region to region and disease to disease, but they're all. But ABO blood group is involved in all these things in the same way that, that uh, Helicobacter pylori is. And just to, to make this, add one little interesting detail to this, the ABO blood group is expressed on the, the surface of the, the stomach, the, right. the lining of the stomach. And the little molecules where it's expressed are right next to the place where the helicobacter pylori actually sticks to the stomach lining. So the ABO blood group, the little molecule of it, bangs into the helicobacter pylori where it's sitting there. Huh. Well. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Maybe I, it's too, too much of a coincidence. <laughs> True or uh, imagined. Yeah, no, I, it makes sense. I, that, that's uh, certainly interesting. Well, I mean, it's easier to take aspirin or antibiotics for, uh, for helicobacter than it is to change blood type. Much. Yeah. So, uh, you know, because that would require a stem cell transplant. I don't think we want anybody to have No, that. but I don't, I don't think it's indicated to, to worry uh, about helicobacter pylori unless one is symptomatic from it. There mm-hmm. are people who are symptomatic who have reflux and heartburn that's attributable to the helicobacter that it's worth dealing with. Gotcha. Well, what about uh, other uh, uh, 
you know, uh, potentially causative uh, exposures that people can do something about. I mean, is tobacco uh, associated, for example, with pancreas cancer? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So that's something people really can potentially control, right? So that is something that that's a much bigger issue than just pancreatic cancer, as we know. Um, the cigarette smoking man-made epidemic is, is a horrendous aspect of our society right. that we are so inured to the damage caused by tobacco that we, we just hardly even think about it anymore. You know, we, we make our campuses smoke-free and, and pat ourselves on the back, but meanwhile, the government is saving $100 billion a year in Social Security payments that aren't being paid out to people who die 10 years earlier from, from their smoking. That's the real warning that should be on the sides of the cigarette packages, that you'll die 10 years earlier and you won't collect your Social Security. It's a little cynical there, Dr. Rich. <laughs> unfortunately, unfortunately the, you know, the money is, is much more important, to, you know, at the political level and what you can do with it to the benefit of your country than, than is the, the lives of people who are viewed as choosing by their own free will to, you know, to addict themselves or not. Yeah. Well, you know, it's actually fascinating because so many people, I think, are looking, you know, look to nutritional supplements and the lifestyle things, which are well associated, but not so easy to change, including obesity, which is a problem that I struggle with, and smoking, which I do not, but many people do. Uh, you know, these are, are measurable uh, causative factors that people do potentially have control over and such a societal problem. I, I agree with you. I think it gets harder and harder as people get older to change these things, and um, they're very difficult, you know, and, the, and whatever scientific methods we can find to uh, ameliorate these, these behaviors is going to be very helpful in the long run. Dr. Harvey Risch is a professor of epidemiology and chronic diseases at the Yale School of Public Health. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.